For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How are you all doing? I'm sure you've been feeling, as I have, very rattled by everything that's happening with the protests in America and with Black Lives Matter. I did think about holding this week's episode and trying to rush through something on that theme, but I'd rather take my time and make sure that we are delivering content that's been very carefully considered. But if you'd like to go back and revisit related previous episodes, then I recommend number 96 with Sarah Ali on fashion and colonialism and number 33 with Kim Jenkins on fashion and race. So we're sticking with the original schedule, which is around World Oceans Day, which is June the 8th. Now, 2020's theme is protect our home. I've been wanting to interview someone who spends all their time in the ocean, who practically lives there. And a friend sent me a new documentary. It's called Undone, and you can watch it in iTunes. It's about an Australian surfer on a pastel pink board in a wetsuit to match, doing cartwheels in 20-foot swells, literally cartwheels. But the ocean is also a place that's challenged Laura to conquer her fear. Laura started surfing as a kid on Sydney's northern beaches. She spent seven years surfing professionally with the Women's World Tour, but now she's decided to reinvent herself as a big wave surfer. Now, big means big and rare. There's literally only a few places that get waves over 20, 25 feet with the right shape for surfing, and they only happen a few times a year. Laura describes these waves as scary, dangerous and remote. This is an extreme sport, and it's one dominated by men. I was doing my big wave surfing research and I found this story in the New York Times. We'll share a link. It's really worth a read. It talks about how big wave surfing originated in Hawaii and by the late 50s, it was synonymous with courageous masculinity. And there were some exceptions. A 15-year-old girl named Linda Benson rode a 20-foot wave in 1959 and Margot Oberg, who is widely recognised as the first female pro surfer, rode big surf in the 70s. But This New York Times story goes on to talk about the sport being dominated by outsized male personalities. And there's this guy called Buzzy Trent who wrote this terrible article in a 1963 surf magazine. And it was titled, Big Waves Are Masculine, Women Are Feminine. And he wrote, One thing I can't stand is girls riding, brackets, or attempting to ride big waves. (laughs) God, thanks for that, Buzzy. Anyway, Laura Enever is more than proving she can hold her own with the boys and she can do it in pastels. So there, Buzzy Trent. (laughs) But ultimately, the only person that Laura's in competition with is herself. I think you're really going to love listening to how Laura conquers her fears, her breath techniques and what it's like to be out there in this place that you love and really respect and trying to conquer your crazy mind as all the possibilities of what might happen to you if you get wiped out are going round and round in your head. And she talks about how we can all relate to it. And I think whether or not you are a sports person or you put yourself in extreme conditions, we all know what it's like to experience and try to conquer feelings of self-doubt. Now, if you fancy an ocean-themed bonanza, there's loads of wardrobe crisis episodes that deal with the sea. You could start with episode number one, which is with marine biologist model Laura Wells, or try number seven with the artist Marina Debris, or 57 with champion sailor turned circular economy expert Ellen MacArthur. Check them out and let me know what you think. Now, let's hear from Laura. 
Oh, Laura Anava, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast just before World Ocean Day. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the theme for World Ocean's Day this year is protect our home. And there's this call to action, it's 30 by 30, which is all about getting world leaders to protect at least 30% of the oceans and land, actually, and conserve ecosystems by 2030. But I wanted to raise that idea of home with you, Laura, because I feel like the ocean is pretty much where you live. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm speaking for all surfers and ocean lovers when we say that the ocean is our second home. And Mm. I mean, what we feel ourselves and yeah, we just have so much love for the ocean. And with World Oceans Day, I feel like all surfers get on board and just do what we can to raise awareness. Tell us about growing up on Sydney's northern beaches. So my husband grew up literally next door to you. Yeah, down (laughs) Um, the road. (laughs) Yeah, you're a little grommet. And I like that word. But if we don't know what that means, for people who don't know about surfing, can you please explain? As a kid, I was actually um, this like little blonde, scrawny tomboy that just wanted to be a pro surfer. And I would just run around and be at the beach all day. Mum would drop us down to go surfing before and after school. And I actually fell in love with gymnastics until I was about eight or nine. And then I got super hooked on surfing. And yes, then I became a grommet, which is just a young surfer or a kid that just basically lives at the beach. Every moment that we could was just spent in the surf and that was really mine and my brother's life growing up and my brother did play a big part in my big wave surfing us um we were very competitive when we were younger and he he kind of had this no fear and if I didn't follow him I wouldn't hear the end of it so (laughs) your brother's older than you right yes my brother's a few years older so what was it like being a girl in that environment because I mean I want to say I've watched Puberty Blues. <laughs> yeah, totally. And if anyone hasn't seen that film, it's not like that now, right? But Puberty Blues is like classic 70s Australian surf culture where the girls are expected to lie on the sand and not partake. Yes. And all the boys are in the water and all the rest of it. But talk us through that, Laura. I grew up in, in the 90s and it still was really intimidating for women to be in the surf. And I just remember always growing up with boys or just like older men in the surf saying like, oh, you surf pretty good for a girl. And Mm. where I grew up at Narrabeen, it it is a really intimidating surf spot, but I only surfed against the boys. And I was, I had to learn this confidence about me to surf against them and not take any of their intimidation, I guess. And But were they sort of protective of you or were they like, get out of the water? I was like the little young, sort of like this tomboy princess bratty girl, but still like the little sister of everyone. And um, they took me under their wing, but then they also, you know, they didn't make it easy. I had to fight for my waves and I wasn't just getting pushed into, you know, the perfect waves. So was it quite sexist or did you not really understand that as a 10 year old kid? I think um, there was about five or six other girls that surfed and I think within the club it it was very family orientated. Like yeah. it was we did feel like a family. And the funniest thing was I surfed against the boys but all the older guys would they would love to see me beat all the younger boys. So like, I actually felt like I had this little team behind me. But then, you know, whenever I went to any other beach, I was so intimidated. I felt like I had no confidence. And I think that's how every girl felt, you know, especially if they came to Narrabeen. Narrabeen is known for its localism and the sort of stories from back in the day that you wouldn't be very proud of. But, but this, <laughs> this culture is, is, that's still a thing, isn't it? Like get yeah. off our beach or girls get off the waves, all this kind of 
I don't know. Is it still? Yeah, around? I, I think that it's leaving, and I think that it yeah. is a really good thing because I'm I'm a really inclusive person. I started, I didn't like localism. Like I understand that people get so protective of where they grow up, but yeah, it defeats what I feel about inclusiveness. And um, I feel like the ocean is for everyone. So you travel around the world, and there is this sense of localism at a lot of different spots, and. You know, you do respect the locals because you know that they've been there, especially if you're going to places like Indonesia and Hawaii. You know, you respect the locals, but I think that things are changing and people are becoming more inclusive and realising that, yeah, we're out here doing the same thing, enjoying the ocean, enjoying the waves, and that's the way I would love to see it go. And I think the world is changing. It's it's funny to wade into the politics of surfing at the beginning of this interview, and I'm sure if my husband <laughs> listens back, he'll be going, what are you doing? But I think it's funny because we, for me, from the outside, who's not a surfer, I always think about surfers as being at one with the ocean, protecting this wonderful playground, being, I don't know, I've got all this kind of romanticised vision of what surf culture is. But actually... It is rooted in a lot of sort of sexism and I don't know, like I love that you're the changing guard and you've obviously got loads of young women and young servers that look up to you. I mean, I feel like I was lucky, to be honest. Like I've heard stories about um, even one of my friend's mums. She came up to me when I released my film and my film Undone and we actually got a premiere in before coronavirus, but she came and, you know, just said, I grew up in the 70s on the beach and I wasn't allowed to go on the water and she just almost had tears in her eyes saying how she never thought this would be possible for women and I think that, yeah, the last 20 years has really broken down boundaries for women surfing and I felt it at a tiny scale compared to that. Mm. And But, yeah, I think now, like, there are so many women in the water and there's, like, some days there's more girls than boys and it's so good to see. You were on the Women's World Tour for seven years and at one point you were ranked number 10 in the world. But in 2016, you were in Maui and you hadn't planned to surf this wave called Jaws, which is like one of the most famous big waves. Yeah. Just tell us about that moment. It was the first ever women's big wave event at Jaws that was sanctioned by the World Surf League. And I I got invited. I'd been surfing some big waves during 2016 and I kind of went back and forth, back and forth, like, no, you're not ready. You've never surfed anything like that. And then I just had this feeling click in me like if you don't go you're going to regret it like just go see it go see if this is something that you're interested in and so Jaws its actual name is Piahi and it's located on Maui in Hawaii and it is the biggest and best big wave surf spot in the world without a doubt and it is high performance people only thought they could ever really tow into it with a jet ski up until maybe 10 years ago and they started paddling into them with these huge boards and it's really dangerous and you can get crazy hold downs but uh I wanted to give it a go I ended up getting injured and I ended up getting a crazy wipeout you'll see at the start of the film and that injury kept me out of the water for the next year and I I couldn't compete in a lot of the world tour events and by the end of 2017, I was, I'd was i fallen off the tour. So, But can, can <laughs> so we talk about that injury? So talk us through that moment and that day. Yeah, so that day was quite wild. Like I didn't have any experience at all surfing at Jaws and I actually didn't have – my equipment wasn't even ready. The only thing I'd done in preparation to that surf was uh, do some breath hold training with a local big wave surfer from home and that I think – I'd give credit to all my confidence that day. I I could hold my breath for three and a half minutes and I felt like I was, if I did get in a sticky situation, I'd be okay. And that's the biggest thing with big wave surfing, but I think nothing can 
prepare you for the power of those waves and just how washed around you get under the water and how brutal it is and that's how my injury happened it just the wave like was what tossing me around and it just um tore my ligaments in my knees when I fell off the world tour after my injury I had I was at this crossroads and I couldn't wipe away that feeling that I felt just putting myself in those waves at jaws and I had this in my head I was like I can either go back to the tour and just compete 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 and try get back on there and they'd actually just bought in equal pay for women so you know the money was there like everything that you'd want in a job is in professional surfing then there was this other side of me that was just I couldn't stop thinking about surfing big waves and I just felt so distracted and I just felt like I owed it to myself after everything I'd done and just to see where it could take me. Big wave surfing has just evolved and people have just started pushing themselves further and harder and in bigger waves and in waves that people thought they could never even surf but there's not many that get to make big wave surfing a career because there's only a certain amount of events, but people just do it for the love and people and do for the adrenaline, feeling. right? And the adrenaline, yeah, it's just something that people just get hooked on. They just will sit on their computer and search for these swells around the world and chase them. And but it didn't make any sense financially. It didn't make any sense. You know, you put everything out on paper. It's like big wave surfing is spending your money to chase waves and how you have no real plan. You're just looking for these swells around the world to just drop everything and go to. And, you know, you're not making any money from them. It's just all from a feeling of a wave and an experience really. So it doesn't make much sense, but I just knew I had to do it. And I was really lucky that I had my sponsor's billabong support at that time and it made that easier for me to make that decision to say, listen, I'll give it a year or two, which I ended up giving it two years and we didn't even plan on making the film. Undone begins with a shot that's very early in the morning and you're hiking and it's like this two-hour trek to the cliffs on the southern tip of Tasmania to this wave that's called Shipsterns. Can you describe it? Yes. Shipsterns is just, I've never seen another wave like it. It is remote I didn't even realize it was a two and a half hour bushwalk to get down to the wave and it's freezing cold it's in Tasmania and the wave it just comes out of deep water and this huge swell comes straight into like a shallow rock ledge under a huge cliff face and it just literally looks like it's breaking straight on the rocks so when I first saw it that morning I was speechless my stomach dropped my heart sunk and I hadn't even, I didn't really put pressure on myself to actually surf this way. I just wanted to go see it. I feel like, hang on, I feel like this is part of your process because you watch this film and you keep saying, I'm not even sure if I'm going to surf this. I'm just going to have a look. <laughs> no. We know you are going to, but it's like, well, do you really, really think until the last minute that you might decide not to? Well, there were a few trips that weren't in the film, which I wish that we kind of put in there where I did arrive at at the spot and I said no. So that was like the biggest thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to take control of my life and really decide what I felt. Like if it felt right, I wanted to do it. If I felt ready and confident and, and a lot of the times I would sit there all day and watch the boys surf and just learn and try see and and then make a decision it wasn't I felt like I had to be more calculated after I'd gone to Jaws and sort of thrown myself into it and got hurt I was Mm. I did feel like I you know I wanted to be more calculated and even though at that first wave at Shipsterns I didn't actually think I was going to surf that day 
after that, I was unharmed and <laughs> I decided, okay, let's go back to the start. So talk us through how it works. So how big can this wave get? So, yeah, this wave can, I mean, it can get up to about 20 foot or more and you're on these waves that look like pine trees. They're just huge. Like, <laughs> And you mentioned before that, and just to remind people if they had missed that bit, there's no beach. It's a cliff. No, it's it a reef and a cliff. Straight rock ledge and the waves break so close. And the first time I saw it, I was just, I thought, these guys are crazy. This is just absolutely stupid. Someone's going to break their neck. Like, this is just absolutely wild. Why would you possibly do this? And I sat there and I watched them and then I probably sat there for about five hours and decided I was going to just paddle out and watch from the channel just to understand how they were doing this. And also I've missed out this important factor that the wave comes in and it also, it's not like a regular smooth wave. The way the reef is, it makes the wave have this step and sometimes, so you're also on this huge wave and then it's like a step pops out and you're doing an air over a step down the wave and it's just, it's a bit silly actually. But <laughs> I, I went out there and um, in the afternoon it was just like everything sort of came together and it felt like really special. The sun came out and I'm like this, I'm actually such a girl in this sense that. Um, what, in your pink wetsuit with your pink board? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm such a girl in the sense that I'm like quite, um, you know, if it's raining and cold and windy, it does not feel right for me. And But when the sun comes out and the water goes all blue and the wind dies off, I'm like, this is perfect. This is my time. And Laura Annivet, that is not gendered. <laughs> you can't say I'm such a girl because of that. <laughs> because it looks pretty. It like, looks like so much prettier. It doesn't look like ugly and scary. It looks like, you know, it's like the water's sparkling and stuff. I know. But it felt like your moment. Yeah, it did. Something just like clicked in me and I just wanted to give it a try and then um, – yeah, I did this huge cartwheel upside down and that woke me up from the sparkly <laughs> dream and that was where this whole journey started and the film Undone is we decided we wanted to go around Australia to these waves that have mostly never been surfed by a girl before and I guess there's only a small amount of guys that even really surf them as well. So I think that, yeah, like you said before, I have this it's like not a system in my head, but the way that I look at big wave surfing is that I don't have to do it if I don't want to, but I always seem to go and want to push myself. So <laughs> I have this non-expectation, but like I've got these goals, but I don't really have a time limit for when I want to ch- achieve them. So if there's a wave that I want to surf, I I feel like I felt more empowered to go there and say no mm. than going there and doing it. I want to know who your adversary is because I was thinking before about what drives the competitive spirit when you're, for example, competing on the tour. But when you're big wave surfing, are you in competition with yourself, with other no, people no. or with the wave? Or is it yeah, not I actually think... about that? Like, It's interesting to me. Like, who Am I, I framing it, it in the wrong way? No, no. That It is a really important question because, yeah, a lot of people ask, like, where does the drive come from? Like, what makes you actually want to do it? It, it is – it's just a feeling and just a thought. It's like as soon as I had this thought I could do that, that could seesaw for months and I'd just go back and be like, you can't do that. That's just silly. That wave is so dangerous. Like, you can get so hurt. Do you want to break your leg? Like, and the, all these thoughts go through my mind until I go back and say, well, you thought that you could do it for a second and now you can't go back from it and – I don't know, it's just, it's like a challenge for myself that I just love to see how far I could push myself really and, but in this sense that 
there's no winning or losing because just trusting yourself and being okay saying no or not today. And I actually learned that from a couple of the big wave male surfers that have kids. And it wasn't until they had kids that they started thinking the same way, like, I'm going to go to surf this big wave, but I have a family now and I don't have to do this if it doesn't feel right. I'm not going to just push myself and do something silly. And it's becoming a smarter, safer big wave surfer. And I would have all my safety equipment. So actually just to explain it to the listeners that I'm like a quite a petite girl, but we have these wetsuits and we have these um, impact suits that go under them. And sometimes like they literally make you look like you like, like finally have a butt and <laughs> got this padding all over me. And um, I heard you say you felt like a pink marshmallow because you do yes. have a pink suit. I had a pink, I thought I was so awesome. I got Billabong to create these pastel pink wetsuits that would go with my pastel pink and blue and yellow boards. And, and- your Instagram feed, which looks so brilliant. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I was like, I'm going to be like this pastel girl. But then um, I didn't really think about what I'd look like once I put my impacts puffy suit under the wetsuit. And I literally just looked like a marshmallow. <laughs> but <laughs> actually, so, I'm glad you brought also, this up because this is a fashion podcast and there's always yeah. a touch on the clothing aspect of whatever we're discussing. Okay. And I often ask when we do talk to people who are either athletes or explorers I mean we did a fantastic podcast with a guy called Tim Jarvis who's basically an arctic explorer and it's interesting to talk about performance gear and what clothes need to give you in terms of protection and that's what you're talking about but you also combined it with style and with fashion totally and that was the thing I was like well if I'm gonna do this I want to look want to look good because I mean I I want to look like a marshmallow (laughs) but yeah I didn't all the boys started calling me the marshmallow when I went down to surf down on the south coast they're like oh the marshmallow's here I'm like that's not what I meant (laughs) that's not what I was aiming for I know I didn't I just didn't um account for the uh, puffy suit that goes underneath and then plus when you surf sun waves you have um you have this vest that you can pull and it becomes a you know it it inflates so you've got these co2 canisters that go in in the wetsuit and you can pull the cord and it inflates and that's kind of like your plan b if you're really feeling like Mm. you're stuck underwater you can pull this and you'll mostly shoot to the surface so I only had to use that once in the film but I used that under my pink wetsuit and I literally was a marshmallow because your whole suit inflates and <laughs> I was just this little head sticking out of this pink suit. Genius. You were though making a serious point which was about safety and about ensuring that you have ticked all the boxes in terms of keeping yourself as safe as possible yeah. but also that idea that the only person pressurizing you to do this is you. Yeah, and I think it was such a big learning curve because I got on the world tour when I was 18 years old and I felt like I just didn't even know myself then and I felt like I had so many people, coaches and and everyone, just so much information coming in and pulling me and I actually felt like I lost sense of myself and couldn't make decisions for myself and just that sense of losing yourself on tour and that sort of happened and I think this was like a big moment in my life where I just wanted to be in control of the decisions and I wanted to do it for me and not for anyone else and not be even defined by you know she surfed that wave or I felt like when I was on tour for a while results began to define me and when I was winning I was feeling really confident when I was losing you know you're feeling like you're really not confident and I think a lot of people can probably relate to that when things are going good you're feeling good and then (laughs) but um I just wanted to go on a journey and not put expectations and pressures on myself and and just really be only doing it for me so it was um 
It's a really interesting um, listening to you talk about that. And I'm also thinking about resilience because obviously competitive sport requires lots of resilience, lots of determination, yeah. lots of strength. But I often think about this in terms of activism. I'm thinking about it today because it's World Environment Day today and I spend oh. a lot of time on Instagram and I was wanting to post something uplifting about the environment and then I just read about the Arctic spill that's happened in northern oh, Russia. Yeah, I just heard And I felt so thing. deflated and so like this stuff is too big, it's out of my control. Totally. So incapable of doing anything that would make a difference it's hard isn't it to maintain resilience in the face of defeats I feel like you know the biggest thing that I learned was that even though I was surfing these massive waves I was still crippled by the fear and doubt of just like a decision a decision to go down a different path and that was like more scary than actually surfing the waves at times and I like a life uh, like a career or life yeah just like a life decision and I actually felt more of the fear and doubts about those sort of things and about just a choice was was harder at times. And, um, yeah, I think for me resilience has come in the form of just not beating myself up and just trusting myself and just really asking myself the hard questions to just say, what do you want? What, you know, if you wanted to try and make as much money as you could now in your 20s, you, you probably would be on tour and fighting for those wins and fighting for the paycheck but I think for me it was just I wanted to challenge myself. I'm interested to know what the ocean teaches you. For me the ocean can be a fun, happy, free, peaceful escape but then the ocean can also be like a challenge, it can be scary, it can also be frustrating and it can bring out sides of you that I don't know it's it's hard to explain the biggest thing is that the ocean humbles you. You can never get too confident because the ocean has its own way of working. Okay, I want to talk about one of the most formidable big waves you've served in Australia. It's known as the Right. It's off the WA coast uh, near a little place called Denmark, about four and a half hours from Perth. Stab magazine calls it one of the least inviting waves in existence. You decided to get there by driving across the Nullarbor Desert from Sydney. It's 5,000 kilometres. It's in the film and it's ridiculous. Yes, well, I feel like I didn't sleep for about five days straight. We uh, we saw this swell in Western Australia and we wanted to take the jet ski, so we thought it would be a good idea to just drive straight across Australia once we got along the Nullarbor, everything just went wrong. Everything was breaking. We had the jet ski trailer in the back of the car and we all buggered off. And then <laughs> we had um, the cage that was carrying all of our gear on top of the jet ski that broke and we got stuck in the desert stranded. It was just, it was a real challenge. <laughs> that's for sure. It did feel like everything was going wrong. And you look back now and you're like, yep, yeah, well, that probably wasn't the best idea at the time, but we thought it would be an adventure. And we actually had to get the jet ski and a trailer towed for about 2,000 kilometres <laughs> to the nearest town and that cost an arm and a leg. And <laughs> But it was all and, because you knew there was a big swell coming and you wanted to go yeah. to a particular wave. Talk to us about the wave. Yes, yeah, so we wanted to go to a particular wave in Western Australia and it's called the right and it's probably the most dangerous wave in the world and the way it works is that it, these huge swells come in off Western Australia and break on this shallow reef but then it goes straight back into super deep water. So unlike the other wave ship stones that breaks on a rock cliff, this one is a kilometre out to sea but then 
it breaks on the reef and then goes into super deep water so you can get like really bad hold down there and people actually get like they, they burst their eardrums really regularly and I think once my friend started telling me about that I was just <laughs> I just was driving over and I started thinking in my head oh well I'm gonna get to this wave and just everything's gonna keep going wrong and I'm gonna burst my eardrums and get bad hold downs and um yeah, I was in a really bad headspace when I surfed that day and it was also the conditions were crazy and um, that was the one time when I actually froze up and couldn't surf. So what happened? The fear had just taken over. It was almost like a panic attack in that sense but um, I hadn't had a panic attack like that since I'd been on tour and I used to get them quite regularly competing. Just the fear would take over and it's just all mental really but it's just accumulation of thoughts that you just crippled really so I had to take myself out of the water and I just sat on the jet ski and I just told myself it's okay for me not to do this and I sat there I think I sat there for maybe like half an hour to an hour and I actually did a few breathing exercises and I learned this doing my breath hold training and I actually found breath hold training to be quite meditative what's the guy called Wim I forgot his name yeah Wim Hof and basically this is because I know a free diver she told me about this he used to swim under the ice. I mean, how crazy, right? Yeah, he's the Iceman. Wim Hof pioneered this breathing technique that can basically make him control his heart rate and blood circulation so he can do this adventure in ice. And I've seen videos of him walking through the snow in board shorts and swimming <laughs> in ice water, and he is totally fine. So basically you learn to control your breath, which then yeah. has effects on the rest of your body. Yes, and I guess it can make people feel like they are completely unstoppable. After that, I was kind of like, no, I just don't even think I'm going to do this anymore. And then I saw a wave and I sort of reset my mind and then just felt like I could do it after that. So (laughs) I ended up catching a couple of waves. Um, They weren't amazing waves, but I still did it. And that was probably the biggest lesson out of all on that during the film you know, because I had all this confidence and I had this system that I was working with, but I was really thrown off at the right and I got over it in that sense. And I, the guy that was towing me in that day, Shannon, he was the one that took me through this breathing exercise and it actually taught me so much about breath and how much breath work can like really be such a saviour and help switch off your mind and um, mm. it was pretty incredible. I was going to ask you when you felt most in danger or out of control in the ocean. Is that the time? Yeah, that would definitely be it. And I felt so out of control. And so I think we all have those times where we just think that everything's going to go wrong. And even with the sharks, I just couldn't stop thinking about the big sharks. And I just couldn't stop thinking about everything that could go wrong. And since this day at the right, I've started looking into breath work a lot more and just the way that it can reset you. I was going to ask you when you felt most safe in the ocean. Perhaps really my is. last question has to be, when have you felt the most joy? Oh, the most joy. I remember this. I was on a surf trip with my dad and my brother, and it was our first surf trip we'd done in like 10 years together or something. And we were out there together, and the sun went down, the sky went like this crazy purple-orange colour, and then the moonrise was coming up and the waves were perfect, and we were just surfing under this like huge full moon, and it was just it was so special. Like I wanted to just be there forever. So ah. <laughs> it really was just, you have these moments in the ocean and that's, I think every surfer would say like, it is this escape and just this joy of riding waves is still my favorite thing to do. Like 
even if they're tiny waves just gliding along them like the sense of freedom that you can feel from surfing is truly amazing Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you